Reflections on Dante's Divine Comedy, The Inferno, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 9. It's interesting, the seducer that's pictured here is Jason. I want to mention this because we'll come to another Jason shortly, but uh, this is Jason uh, of the Golden Fleece story. And uh, he is not your run-of-the-mill Don Juan, you see. He is someone who has abandoned uh, or seduced and abandoned two women, Hypsipyle and Medea. Uh, but he did it uh, with this uh, nobler alibi. Namely, he had largest, I think this is the way to read this, larger historical business that he had to attend to. Uh, males have a way of getting into this mode, you know, when they need to. I'd love to stick around, my dear. But... So Jason is the guy he picks for the seducers, which I think is quite interesting, because it seems like this thing of getting the golden fleece is ever so much more important uh, than being honest and faithful, or at least to, to, more important than having a real meeting. And the flatterers, uh, again, the, the flatterers that are depicted are, uh, are those who have perverted the sexual longing, and they have, um, and they have, been, they have lied. And they're, 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 the one who's pictured, uh, they're swimming in uh, excrement. Um, to, the way to bring this into contemporary, uh, our sensibility, is to realize that the flatterers are swimming in bullshit. <laughs> and then you get the picture right there. <laughs> uh, Canto 19 begins with a uh, striking mood change. As a matter of fact, before we get into, before Dante the Pilgrim uh, learns about who's being punished in this, uh, in this pit, uh, the Dante the Poet can't wait for Dante the Pilgrim to learn, so Dante the Poet uh, exclaims at the beginning of the canto, Oh, Simon Magus! Uh, and uh, this is before he's learned about these things. Simon Magus is the, uh, is the character referred to in the Acts of the Apostles who was a, uh, a Samaritan, or at least somebody who was working in Samaria, uh, probably a Gnostic cult leader or something like that. But in, in any case, he was a uh, respected uh, religious man in Samaria. And he was converted to Christianity by Philip, and then after that conversion, Peter and John came to Samaria, and uh, all the people that had been baptized, Peter and John uh, initiated into the Spirit, whatever that meant. And the initiation into the Spirit conferred upon these uh, fledgling Christians the, the charisms of the Church, and uh, they began to do what the Spirit does when the Spirit moves you. And... Uh, as Simon Magus looked on, he was quite impressed, and he went over to Peter and 
John, and he said, uh, how much you take to do that to me? <laughs> so um, he gave his name, Simon, to this sin, which is simony. And it is the sin of uh, perverting uh, religious office or church office for private gain or trying to traffic in the sacramentals of the church uh, to, to convert it into money. Well, Dante, who under Dante's love for and appreciation of the historic mission of the church was enormous, and his his uh, disgust with those who were were subverting it for their own ends was was uh, in proportion to his respect for the for the church itself. And they had, in his estimation, turned the church upside down. So when he visits them in hell, he finds that they are turned upside down. And uh, so we have to look at his imagery here because it covers a lot of a lot of things. I'll read. Along the sides and down along the bottom, I saw that livid rock was perforated, and the openings were all one width and round. They did not seem to me less, less broad or more than those that in my handsome San Giovanni, the church of, of John the Baptist, were, excuse me, than those that in my handsome San Giovanni were made to serve as basins for baptizing. And one of these, not many years ago, I broke for someone who was drowning in it, and let this be my seal to set men straight. Out from the mouth of each hole there emerged a sinner's feet, and so much of his legs up to the thigh, the rest remained within. Both souls of every sinner were on fire. Now there's an uh, image of that in the Tom Phillips uh, imagery. And this is a depiction of the baptistry at San Giovanni. And what, what it depicts is this. On Pentecost and on uh, Easter Eve, great crowds came to be baptized. And the water font was uh, here in the middle, probably. But huge crowds would, would crowd in, and the priests, that were baptizing stood in these little uh, circular uh, uh, stone pits to be protected from the throngs pushing and shoving and from the splashing water of people being baptized. So it was a quite a chaotic event, these mass baptisms. And so Dante, that is, in a sense, the portal to eternal life. You see, well, Dante has made it for these corrupt popes another kind of portal, and they are stuck head first into these uh, into these pits. He makes an interesting little simile. He says it reminds me of the bab the baptismal fonts in, at San Giovanni, and that's appropriate because that's what he's trying. That's the scene he's trying to depict. And then he says this. One of these, not many years ago, I broke for someone who was drowning in it, and let this be my seal to set men straight. 
earlier scholars thought, well, obviously, this is obviously a fact in Dante's life. He broke one of these, these stone casements that the priests stand in because there was a child stuck in it with some water pooled at the bottom, and, he, and the child was drowning. He broke it and let the child out. Earlier scholars thought, well, Dante uh, was accused of sacrilege for def defacing the church because of this event. More recently and more uh, reasonably, people have felt, well, first of all, there's absolutely no evidence of any rumor that went around about Dante defacing church property. And secondly, it's very unlikely that that would happen because then, as now, it seemed like a legitimate thing to do to try to save a little baby to break a piece of, you know, of, of uh, stone. So what's Dante saying here? He needs to set the set the record straight. He's essentially saying, I want to set the record straight. I think it is the following. The popes have, if these, if the baptismal font is the, intro, the portal to eternal life, the corrupt popes have clogged it. Now Dante is writing in a time when the church is still the censor. He's writing a poem that's going to have very little chance of being read if the church comes down with all its weight against it, which it did. For a long time, this, po this poem was condemned. And Dante's, he's right on the verge. He's already, the first sinner we met in hell was a pope. The first full-fledged certified sinner was a pope. Uh, and he's about to, he's about to uh, enumerate not only a number of popes, but the three popes who were alive in his time. In other words, and one of them, one of them is alive at the moment in the fictional poem when he's writing, 1300, and the other one is, a, is alive when he's published the poem, when he is writing the poem and when it's published. So he's, he's about to uh, announce to the world that the existing popes are going to go to hell uh, in a world that was completely or not completely, but largely, an intellectual world that was largely dominated by the papacy. So I think what he's trying to do is trying to explain his poem a little bit. These popes have clogged the thing. Further on, well, I sh I'll tell you, you know this already, uh, he has a very ingenious way of condemning the existing pope. Uh, the Pope, that is to say, who was, in, who was Pope in 1300, Dante's most hated enemy, uh, Boniface VIII. Dante goes over these feet are kicking wildly out of this hole, you see. And Dante goes over and he looks down and he says, if you can speak, do so. And uh, this voice from below says, um, Are you already standing, already standing there, O Boniface? The book has lied to me by several years. So this is, this is Nicholas, uh, an earlier pope, who preceded Boniface VIII. So Dante has created a nice little device. Dante is not condemning this pope to hell. 
and because the Pope's still alive at the moment that Dante's writing the book. But Dante has the previous Pope who already knows what's going to happen. When Boniface dies, so, there, so he says, you're already here, Boniface. And it's Dante's shrewd little way of putting Boniface in hell before he's died. So when, Bonif when uh, Nicholas says this, he says to Boniface, says to Dante, thinking he's Boniface, are you so quickly sated with the riches for which you did not fear to take by guile the lovely lady than to violate her? The lovely lady is the church. But to take by guile, the Italian word is ingano, which means deceit. And the word Dante uses up here when he says, I want to set men straight, is sidani, which is related to the same root, which means to uh, undeceive. So he has created in the language a little hint of what he's doing. The popes are clogging the portal to eternal life with their corruption. And you, O faithful one, who think that I am being sacrilegious in my poem, I want to tell you a little story. I once broke the, the baptismal font to save a life. And that's what my poem is. It may seem like an act of sacrilege to the faithful, but it is an act of redemption. It is an attempt to break this tradition open again and let it come alive again and to try to overcome the clogging that's happening because of the corrupt hierarchy. So I think it's an important statement about his poem that he throws in this little uh, simile. Let this be a seal to set men straight. And I think he's talking about the Divine Comedy. And then he says something interesting, uh, again, when he's speaking uh, uh, to, this, to the feet of Nicholas. He says, uh, I stood as the friar who confesses the foul assassin who fixed fast head down calls back the friar and so delays his death. And he cried out. Um, the tradition had been earlier in Florence that a murderer was punished by a big hole was dug and the murderer was staked to the bottom of the pit and then the pit was filled in on the murder. Just before they started shoveling the dirt in, of course, the priest would come over and bend down and hear the last uh, confession of the murderer. And uh, Dante's uh, perhaps recalling a scene where someone keeps thinking of a few more sins to try to postpone the, <laughs> the uh, inevitable. But the point here, I think the more important point is, that Dante has changed places. Dante is now in the position of the priest, and the Pope is in the position of the murderer. Now, that's, a, that's as about as audacious as you can be in this tradition. So, and I think it might relate to this transition we talked about before, from going from that superego father's voice, which says that's not the way, to coming into touch with this ancestral voice, which provides the authority. And now Dante begins to move 
is beginning to learn something about this authority. Uh, and he can be the he can be uh, in some way pass judgment on this. That the that that these people are not beyond judgment by those who are uh, down the hierarchical order someplace. Uh, of course, the pope, pope comes from Papa, which means Father, and uh, it may be that this whole question, the probably the, the issue that the papacy gets into is 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 it is it speaking as a Papa in the sense of a super ego, or is it speaking as an ancestral voice? The notion that 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 the world needs an infallible voice, uh, infallible voice, is I think. Its legitimacy is that we do need an ancestral voice that can cut through the contemporary nonsense with authority. I think that's an archetypal need, and I think the notion of uh, infallibility is, is is an attempt to render in the uh, you know to, to to meet that archetypal need. Well, he then picks out one more pope, Clement V, who came after Boniface. And Nicholas notes that Clement V is coming, and uh, Clement V had cut a deal with the with Philip of France and moved the papacy to Avignon, and that was, of course, Dante thought that was uh, horrendous. And so he, like Nicholas, likens uh, Clement V to a new Jason. This is very interesting because we had this other Jason, the classical uh, Jason, and now we get a Jason out of the Old Testament. Very unlike Dante, he has he had uh, in his poem he says the Jason that we read about in Maccabees, which is very unlike Dante to tell you where to go look it up. Uh, but I think it's important because uh, this in Second Maccabees there's a story about a character whose original name was probably Joshua. Joshua is a version of the name Jesus, or uh, maybe the other way around. Jesus is a version of the name Joshua, so that his original name was, I think we can say, Jesus. He changed it to, first of all, he bought his way into the, this is an Old Testament story, he bought, uh, he bribed the Syrian king Antiochus and got the high priesthood of the Jews from the Syrian overlords, and then he immediately, in part of the deal probably that he cut with Antiochus, he began, immediately began to Hellenize the Jews. And he changed his own name to Jason, which is a nice, respectable Greek name, and um, he began to subvert the Jewish, uh, the essence of the Jewish tradition, and turn it into a Greek one. He built uh, gymnasiums to train the young uh, the young Jews, and he had this, he held a sacrifice in honor of of the pagan hero uh, Hercules, and so on. So that he began to Hellenize and cause the people of God to blend in with the with the dominant culture of the time. See, that's the thing: the man who causes the people of God to lose their special identity and to be co-opted by the larger culture. Very interesting, because as soon as he talks about that, the next thing Dante says is, "Oh, Constantine." 
And Constantine was the, was the Roman emperor who converted to Christianity and then turned Christianity into the official religion, uh, or the favored religion at least, and finally the dominant official religion of the empire. And what Dante laments about that most of all is this thing which was in fact a fraud, a, a, a forgery, but was something that's been known as the gift of Constantine, which is that he gave the papacy, he gave Italy to the papacy, control over Italy to the papacy. And for, by Dante's standards, it's one of the, it's, it's, it's the great disaster of history that the papacy should be given uh, uh, temporal power because it brought in all the corruption. So, and you see what happens is, because he's just mentioned what Jason did in the Old Testament, what happens is that one becomes co-opted and then turns the church into, the church becomes a chaplain to the empire so that it just is co-opted by it and loses its special mission, its special identity. Uh, and so the question is, uh, again, it's, there's this father question in here. Uh, Constantine could be seen to be the father of Christendom, of Christendom, if you think of a distinction between Christianity and Christendom. Constantine is the father of Christendom. Some people have begun to say that Christendom is over, and hallelujah, uh, and that uh, what may come out of it is Christianity, lo and behold. Wouldn't that be something? Uh, the father of faith is Abraham, who always hears the voice which says, you must get up and leave your father's house. Abraham is the one who always has to go. And... Uh, Constantine made it comfortable to stay. But anyway, I wanted to read something and then touch on one last thing. Uh, this is from uh, William McNamara. He's a uh, discalced Carmelite. That means he doesn't wear any shoes. Uh, there are some Carmelites who wear shoes and some who don't. He's one of the ones who doesn't. So you can, maybe if you go without shoes long enough, you end up writing things like this. He says, the church cannot afford a respectable inside position. She must begin her work in the wilderness and finish it outside the gate. Her whole ministry depends upon her fidelity to the heart and soul of the Judeo-Christian tradition, the desert experience. What changed between the third and fifth centuries, and that's when Constantine changed things, what changed between the 3rd and 5th centuries was not the teaching of Jesus, but the loss of awareness on the part of the church of both her aromatical, which means her desert nature, and of her minority status. Instead, she fancied herself establishment. And that's the beginning of the end. Well, that's at the moral level. At a deeper level, uh, one, one final word about simony. We don't need to, I mean, we could have a lot of fun here poking fun at the TV evangelist and all of that. But there is a deeper implication in simony, I think. And when Nicholas is questioned, he says, I am, I am one of those who wore the mighty mantle. And we think of the word mantle not only in its literal sense of the, 
of the of the cloak of authority, but but in the sense of a special quality that a person takes on and represents for other people. It is, in a way, if we can use another one of these psychological fictions, it's it's the enormous potential involved in the transference, the psychological transference, onto another human being. And it gives the person on whom that transference is projected enormous power. And it's very nice to be seen as a god, you know. It's very, it's, it's quite heady to go around in, in your Pope mobile and be and be and be regarded as the vicar of Christ on earth, you know. It's a it's heady stuff. It's very likewise heady to, to enter into the therapeutic session with somebody who is glazy eyed uh, with your greatness and all the rest of it, you know. It, well see that's the thing about the T V evangelist. You think uh, in some ways it's a laughable sort of thing and and, and the, the silliness and superficiality and profound, I mean, I don't want to sound too condescending, but the enormous ignorance of the whole show uh, at one level. But then when you realize that there are literally millions of people out there who have, who have invested something very sacred into that, in Canto 20, Dante visits the sinners who are being punished uh, for trying to uh, foresee the future. Fortune tellers, magicians, sorcerers, wizards, um, diviners, and so on. I thought we might begin by putting uh, ourselves in that uh, place in hell for a second and analyzing our own situation. Uh, by slightly enlarging the definition of the sin. In our time, we, as Dickens said, it is the, it is the best of times and the worst of times, uh, we regard ourselves as being either hopeful or despairing, or, in the, or alternately from day to day, but what we all share together is the sense that the measure of my hope and my despair is my attitude towards the future. So that if I am hopeful as opposed to despairing, practically the definition of hope in our time is that one is hopeful who strives to know, to alter, to prepare for, or to ameliorate the future. One who has hope does that. We are all small d Democrats. In America we are, because we have learned that it is up to us to determine our own future. Not with tea leaves or animal entrails, those are incidental, but with whatever we have that is for us believable, science, sociology, economics, politics, something that will convince us that, convince us of history's direction and reassure us that we are on, uh, we are on the right track, that, uh, history is on our side, or that it will somehow vindicate us. Now, at the historical level, that's a perfectly legitimate thing. It's reasonable and appropriate to want to 
uh, alter the future, to stop the arms race, to end hunger and poverty, uh, to lessen the oppression in the world, uh, to uh, forestall or avert ecological disaster. Those are important uh, things to be doing, and altering the future is, is part of that hope. But the problem with the future is that it is not here yet, and it is open-ended, and so we can uh, project onto the future all kinds of things, because it hasn't happened yet. And uh, the only resource for these projections is our own unconscious psyche, and so we project onto it all kinds of things, which makes it not only what it is in itself, but a highly uh, enriched uh, psychical uh, field. So the American poet W.S. Merwin says, tell me what you see vanishing, and I will tell you who you are. Look into the future and see what you see happening, and I will tell you who you are. The other problem with the, so that it's complicated psychologically because it invites those projections. The other thing about the future is that it is like petroleum. It is a highly uh, energetic thing to base one's life on until you run out of it. And then what? And we will all, of course, run out of it sooner or later. And that will be the big crisis for us, particularly if we've invested all of ourselves into it. Now, when Dante sees these sinners, he looks down and he says, In the valley circle I saw souls advancing, mute and weeping, at a pace that in our world holy processions take. I think this is an allusion to the realization in his time and likewise in ours that these souls have imported into their concern for the future a religiosity that's inappropriate to it. I'll remind you that all the souls in hell know the, perfect, know the, the future perfectly well. So whether I am a conservative and I expect the future to be to repeat, or a progressive, and I expect the future to transcend. And regardless of whether I'm right or wrong in my estimation of it, to the extent that I know the future, to that extent I am a godless man. As Americans, we know it is our duty to determine our own future. The word determine means to put an end to the original use of the word, etymologically, that's what it means. The original use of the word in the 15th century meant exactly that. It was, it was, the, uh, it was synonymous with to die or to kill. We still get it in the vulgar sense when we get the spy novels talking about somebody having to be terminated. To determine something means to put an end to it. So we are caught in this double bind being upstanding Americans and knowing it our duty to determine our own future, Dante looks down on these souls and he says they had their faces twisted toward their haunches and found it necessary to walk backward because they could not see ahead of them. Just an, an aside here, he probably got that from four, 44th chapter of Isaiah in which Yahweh says, I frustrate false prophets and their signs and make fools of diviners. I reverse what wise men say and make nonsense of their wisdom. In, in earlier translations and even in some of the 
existing English translations, where it says here, I reverse what wise men say, the text says, I turn the wise around. Dante's text obviously said that, and so that's where he got the image, probably. The issue, I think, for us, if we are to visit this uh, part of hell with some sense of our own condition, would be, uh, would have to do with this question. Is the future an appropriate object for, a legitimate repository for, religious longing or religious hope? Now, in older times, there existed, as part of the common knowledge, a sense of, very much part of Dante's cosmology, a sense of the spheres of existence. Um, the levels or orders of being or reality. And all of these were happening simultaneously. And so one had a place to invest one's hope other than in the temporal plane. If you see what I'm saying. There were other dimensions of reality that were known to exist. A hierarchical order of things where if I were to see what's happening under the auspices of one of these orders, it might look thus and so. But if I could only come to regard it under the auspices of a more encompassing order, I might see it otherwise. So one had uh, a much more uh, uh, complex and elaborate way of coming to terms with what's what. In the course of the last several hundred years, we have eliminated that, sometimes with a vengeance. So that all those now banished, the only place we have to invest our hope is the future. The only place we have to invest our religious longing is the future. Albert Camus said, the future is the only transcendental value for men without a God. So we've become inordinately preoccupied with the future. Uh, late 19th century, early 20th century uh, types were, were priding themselves on how, how well they had extricated themselves from the bondage of the past not realizing that, like Dante's souls in this part of hell, they were backing in to, a, to another kind of bondage, locked into the future in some strange way. We become religious Hegelians. I mean, this is a funny punch to pull. Hegel, you know, a, a philosopher who essentially... Uh, all but, all but uh, deified the historical process. History was the numinous, ongoing uh, undertaking. And, of course, there's enough truth in this to be believable. Uh, but history was it. And uh, today, among uh, theologians, there's this uh, battle going on about whether or not theology in oppressed societies uh, is becoming Marxist theology. 
That, I think, is a minor question. The question is whether or not theology is becoming, uh, all across the board, Hegelian theology. Is it becoming so totally tied up with history, namely the future, uh, is it investing all of its religiosity into another dimension of the temporal plane? Now, I made this bold statement a minute ago about uh, to the extent that I know the future, I'm a godless man. And I think that is true, by the way. I think that is true. My godlessness might be measured by the degree to which knowing and making the future has been substituted in my life for knowing and serving God. So what I wanted to do is uh, put us in this place in hell a little bit. Now, among the other sinners that are being punished there, this is by and large people looking, who have tried to spend their lives inordinately trying to look into the future. And I think people who have invested their religious longing and hope into the future uh, illegitimately. So we might start with Martin Buber. Martin Buber defines magic as the attempt to have a religious life without entering into a relationship. The attempt to have a religious life without entering into a relationship. based on the on Buber's sense that the truth cannot be known, it can only be encountered. Known cerebrally. Well, based on the Buber thing about magic being religious, uh, attempt to have a religious life without enter, entering into a relationship, I'd like to read to you William Stafford's poem called Glances. Now, last week we, I, 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 uh, share with you this idea of the meeting place and the swap meet. I still want to talk somewhat about those in a way this week, but here's William Stafford's poem, Glances. And I'll read it and then come back to it. Two people meet. The sky turns winter, quells whatever they would say. Then a periphery glance into danger, and an avalanche already on its way. They have been honest all their lives, careful, calm, never in haste. They didn't know what it is to meet. Now they have met the world is waste. They find they are riding an avalanche, feeling at rest, all danger gone. The present looks out of their eyes. They stand calm and still on a speeding stone. The speeding stone, of course, is the earth. The reason I wanted to share that with you is because it is, I think, in a beautiful way, a hint of this other dimension that can come slicing in to our temporal frame. And it's that dimension that is worthy of our religious 
hope and longing. Now, just to go back to the poem a minute. The poem is entitled Glances, but it is not... The poem simply says in the first three words, two people meet. That's the end of that. Two people meet. That is the occasion for what happens. The glance is towards the avalanche. Then, a periphery glance into danger and an avalanche already on its way. That's the glance. The meeting is the occasion for it, but it is out of the corner of their eye that they see suddenly the avalanche that has been occasioned by a real meeting. He said they did not, they had been honest all their lives, calm, careful, never in haste. They did not know what it is to meet. Now they have met the world is waiting. Suddenly, all of that goes up in a puff of smoke at the meeting, and out of the corner of their eye, they see the avalanche, and hello, reality. Now, the meeting can be the meeting with another person. It can be the meeting with death or life. It can be the meeting with the sunset. It's a meeting one of the consequences of which is out of the corner of one's eye. Here comes the avalanche. You know, I've, this uh, Dickinson poem I like, a little phrase, she says, uh, since I could not stop for death, death kindly stopped for me. I said last week, the ego project is the attempt to arrive at personhood without going to the mountain. Here, the mountain is, if you won't go to the mountain, the mountain will come to you. It's called an avalanche. You don't, you don't have what Moses had? You can't go there yourself? Here. This is the divine initiative. The avalanche. At the moment of meeting. And that's all there is to hope for. All there is to hope for is that we can be there at that meeting. And that when the avalanche comes roaring by, we can attend to it in such a way that the present looks out of our eyes and that we stand calm and still on a speeding stone. That's the hope. But that is an apocalyptic hope. Not apocalyptic in the sense of the world coming to an end, crashing down, but apocalyptic in the sense that it is something that breaks into time with reality and is not of time. It's coming from someplace else. And its place of entry into time is the meeting place. So magic is the attempt to have a religious life without entering into a relationship, without going to the meeting place. Carl Jung said, and now I'm going to summarize Carl Jung. It's over there on the bottom shelf, 19 volumes. I'm going to summarize it. <laughs> he said, it finally comes down to this. Am I or am I not related to something eternal? Two important words in that phrase of his. Related is the verb and eternal 
Am I or am I not related to something eternal? And if so, under what conditions am I put in touch with the existence of that relationship? I'm going to read this poem one more time just because I hate to turn the page without reading it again. Two people meet. The sky turns winter, quells whatever they would say. Then a periphery glance into danger and an avalanche already on its way. They have been honest all their lives, careful, calm, never in haste. They didn't know what it is to meet. Now they have met. The world is waste. They find they are riding an avalanche, feeling at rest, all danger gone. The present looks out of their eyes. They stand calm and still on a speeding stone. The hope is that my life is not totally temporary. Is my life totally temporary? Yes. I cannot escape its temporariness by going into the future. The future is just more of the temporary. It is not exactly contemporary, but it's going to be pretty soon. The part of it that I'm interested in is going to be <laughs> contemporary sooner or later. It's just part of the temporary. So if I've got a place there, it's going to be a temporary place. And if I project my religious longing into the future, then it will be eaten up there and spit out the back end the way things are on the temporary track. So everything in my existence is temporary except maybe what, this, what Jung is hinting at, a relationship to something eternal. By projecting my longing to future time, I condemn myself to a temporary existence. By being, by having my legitimate concern for the future uh, enlarged by, uh, by having, by seeping into it my religious longing, is to rob myself of the very stuff of religious life. The stuff of religious life, we could all make our own list. Uh, mine would include these. Something that is radically relational, radically unpredictable, and apocalyptic. Apocalyptic in the sense that it breaks into time. John Neihardt. In, in, a, in his long poem, The Cycle of the West, writes, But even then the unseen player came who stacks the shuffled deck of circumstance and playing wild the joker men call chance defeats the aces of our certainty. 
in his poem, he quotes, uh, he capitalizes J in Joker and C in Chance, so that the reader of the poem, at any rate, will get the message. The temporal dimension that's appropriate to religious life is the eleventh hour. Not the past, not the present, the ordinary present. The ordinary present is not the eleventh hour. It can be, but as you know so well, so do I, it can also not be. If you were going to put your money down, take a, take a bet on it. Pick tomorrow afternoon at 3.47. What are you betting? thousand to one? So it's not the present. It's not the past. It's not the future. The eleventh hour is the temporal dimension worthy of religious longing. Religious hope. So what I want to do is um, once again bring in T.S. Eliot. To I, I realize more and more T.S. Eliot is the, is the great modern commentator on Dante. One of Eliot's poetic uh, tasks, as he saw it, I think, was to demolish hope with a small h so that the theological virtue of hope could come into its proper place. And as long as we were conjuring up little uh, facile reasons for hanging on to the small h, hope, we would never come into that larger dimension of things. And he knew that in our time there, was, there were infinite uh, things for us to hang our little small h, hope, on. There were novelties coming so fast and furious that the next one would be the solution to the great problem. And it, it's, it's nuclear energy in this decade and antiferon in this decade and God knows what in the next one. And it's always going to be something. So he wrote uh, Dry Salvages, which is uh, one of the four quartets, and first of all, he had to disabuse himself and others of the small age hope. So he said, there is no end but addition. The trailing consequence of further days and hours. He's breaking this thing about the future. There is no end but addition. The trailing consequence of further days and hours while emotion takes to itself the emotionless years of living among the breakage of what was believed in as the most reliable and therefore the fittest for renunciation. You want to know what the future is going to be like? The breakage of what was believed in as the most reliable. Some people read this when Eliot first wrote it and they, felt, they said, that's a terribly pessimistic thing to say. And, of course, that's the way one always feels about the initial stage, which is to demolish the hope with a small h. If you're hanging on to the future, he says, it's going to be no end but an addition. 
the trailing consequence of further days and hours. The breakage of what was believed in as the most reliable and therefore the fittest for renunciation. In East Coker he said, I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope. For hope would be hope for the wrong thing. There is in Spanish a word, a verb, esperar, which means both to wait and to hope. It catches the word esperar, I think, catches the essence of the theological virtue of hope. It is not optimism. It is not optimism. So time is the a proper and available metaphor for our longing and our hope, but there always comes a crisis, and the crisis is when I suddenly realize that the future is not where the hope belongs. It's not where the longing belongs. And that crisis happens in the 11th hour, and how I respond to that crisis will determine uh, the outcome of my religious life. I think of the story of Judas. Uh, the best I, my best take I can take on Judas is that he was, is is that he was a uh, a, a passionate nationalist insurrectionist. And his crisis came when he saw that Jesus's movement was not going to be politically successful. That's the crisis, and how we, do we put another nickel in and go around again with some other hope? See, do we join up with the, with the gorillas in the hills, or do we become a sophisticated stoic? Um, what, how do we respond to that crisis, that the future is not where it is? Sometimes it happens at the very end of life, there's no more future there. Aeneas, when he went into the underworld, his, his daddy told him all about the future of Rome and how great it was going to be, and then sent him out through the, the ivory gates, the, great, the gates of false dreams. Let me tell you a story about how great the future is going to be, right out through the gate of false dreams. Arnold Toynbee said, Utopias are generally, generally the product of civilizations in decline, and our attempts to arrest the decline by pegging the society at its actual level at the moment. We begin to imagine the future at that moment when we're in the crisis and realize there isn't one. So Eliot is trying to speak to that. And so he says, as straightforwardly as you can, uh, you can and still be one of the great English poets of the, all time, the future is a faded song. Notice the oxymorons in this passage. The future is a faded song, a royal rose or a lavender spray of wistful regret for those who are not yet here to regret. Oh, boy. You see what he's trying to break is the very, is the essence of the atmosphere we walk around in. 
The future is a faded song, a royal rose or a lavender spray of wistful regret for those who, have not, uh, who are not yet here to regret, pressed between yellow leaves of a book that has never been opened. The yellow leaves of a book that has never been opened. And the way up is the way down, and the way forward is the way back. I think that's an obvious uh, hint that he's taking Dante's Canto 20 in the Inferno as a starting point for this. You cannot face it steadily, but this thing is sure, that time is no healer, the patient is no longer here. All of that, and so much else of Eliot's poetry, perplexing to us. But it, the thrust of it is, to the extent that it has a prophetic message, the thrust of it is to break us out of this, this uh, temporal dimension in which we have replaced preoccupation with past or present with preoccupation with future. So I will read the uh, longer passage, which is, I think, almost a direct commentary on Canto 20 in Eliot's poem, and then comment on it briefly. Remember now, this is Canto 20 is where the, where the fortune tellers uh, and magicians and so on are being punished. This is Eliot. To communicate with Mars, converse with spirits, to report the behavior of the sea monster, describe the horoscope, perspicate or scry, observe diseases and signatures, evoke biography from the wrinkles of the palm and tragedy from fingers, Release omens by sortilage or tea leaves. Riddle the inevitable with playing cards. Fiddle with pentagrams or barbituric acids. Or dissect the recurrent image into preconscious terrors. To explore the wound or tomb or dreams. All these are the usual pastimes and drugs and features of the press. And will always be. Some of them especially when there is distress of nations and perplexity, whether on the shores of Asia or in the Edgware Road. Men's curiosity searches past and future and clings to that dimension. I want to dwell on this last sentence for a second. He did not say men's curiosity searches past and future and clings to those dimensions. He used the singular and clings to that dimension. Past and future, just one great long line. That is one dimension. Preoccupation with either end of it is ontologically indistinguishable from the other. That's, and this is what Eliot calls the usual pastimes and features of the press. The usual pastimes and drugs and features of the press. Eliot was not a, I mentioned small d Democrat, Eliot was not a great egalitarian. He, he's an egalitarian in that, in that uh, he, he, he may not have believed, uh, uh, pardon, the, pardon the masculine spin on these words, he may not have believed that, uh, that uh, we're all equally, but he believed we were all brothers, <laughs> or brothers and sisters. Uh, so he's not an egalitarian in the ordinary sense. He understood that there were 
but there were the uh, pastimes and drugs and features of the press that would always be people trying to monkey around with the future. And then he juxtaposes to that a stark juxtaposition, the saint. But to apprehend, this is following right along from where I left off before, but to apprehend the point of intersection of the timeless with time is an occupation for the saint. No occupation either, but something given and taken in a lifetime's death in love, ardor, and selflessness, and self-surrender. So that's quite a that's quite a shock to go from the horoscope and uh, the palm reading and uh, the various other little ways of teasing around with what the future is going to hold, to go to the saint who's not concerned with the future. His concern with time is to be an occasion for the breaking into time of eternity, the breaking into time of the timeless. One thing is sure about time, the timeless, I shouldn't say this. You see, I shouldn't say that one thing is sure because that's, that, is, that is me limiting the divine spontaneity, right? Um, but one thing is likely. <laughs> On our planet, given you know, our atmosphere and the carbon molecule and all the rest of it, <laughs> one thing is likely that the intersection of the timeless into time will happen, will somehow be, uh, will somehow involve the human neocortex. That if that intersection is going to happen, we're going to have to be there for it. We need to be there for it, to become the occasion for it. In the sense of that Stafford poem said, Two people met, and then their eyes glanced in the avalanche. They didn't make it happen, but they were there for it at the meeting place. So the saint is someone whose occupation is simply to be the meeting place. Now, most of us couldn't hold up under that kind of... That's a pretty... That's a pretty demanding occupation. And uh, Elliot has a sense of the rest of us, because then he, the next thing he says in the poem is, for most of us... Now, most of us are not going to go reading poems and horoscopes, or, and uh, most of us are not capable of being sane. So how about the rest of us? Well, here's what he says about the rest of us. For most of us, there is only the unattended moment, the moments in and out of time, the distraction fit, lost in a shaft of sunlight. I'm telling you, the more I read Eliot, the more I, I'm just astounded 
by what he dry cell like this is in the four quartet for most of us you see there is this this temporal thing that's going on all the while past present future past present future past present future da, 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 da. most of us are right in there with it just just thick as we can be and we're just caught up in it. past present future past present but even in our inordinately uh, demented age, demented in the sense that we are so busy with that kind of stuff. Even for us, there's an occasional moment which he calls unattended moment. That is to say, it's, it's, it's where we just momentarily let our guard down and we ease over to the side of that treadmill that we've been on, just just for a moment, an unattended moment. A moment in and out of time. We're not where the saint is, but we're not, you know, in the we're not reading the front pages of the National Enquirer in the checkout stall either. We're somewhere in between there. The distraction fit. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? The distraction fit, like that. Lost in a shaft of sunlight. <laughs> That's it. That is it. Well, let me read the whole thing. For most of us, there's only the unattended moment, the moment in and out of time, the distraction fit, lost in a shaft of sunlight, the wild time unseen, that little smell that comes like that, going, the wild time unseen, or the winter lightning, breaks in, it's gone, or the waterfall, or the music heard so deeply that it is not heard at all, but you are the music while the music lasts. These are only hints and guesses, hints followed by guesses. The rest is prayer, observance, discipline, thought, and action. That's what it's all about. Is being there, even if one's being there in a, in a semi-conscious, distracted way, being there for the shaft of sunlight, the music that suddenly one feels at the core of one's being. And recognizing that as the breaking in of timelessness onto time, and all the rest is prayer, observance, discipline, thoughts, and action. Notice the order of that. It begins with prayer and ends with action. But all the rest of it is simply trying to uh, bring that hint or that guess that came with that flash of, of that interruption, to bring that into life, to incarnate that into life, because his next line is, the hint, half guessed, and the gift, half understood, is incarnation. This is an incarnating cosmos, 
And it's perfectly okay for us to tell ourselves stories about how it is an evolving cosmos. That's one way of looking at it. It is, of course, an evolving cosmos. That's at one, one, one sphere of existence, one order of reality can regard it perfectly correctly as an evolving cosmos. But what Elliot is saying is that it is an incarnating cosmos. And all the, as uh, Teilhard Desjardins said, uh, no amount, he said, if, if the stuff of the cosmos had been perfectly indifferent, no number of random occurrences stretched over however many eons of time would have produced the slightest progression. And it is not progressive, it is apocalyptic. And it breaks in. And the, and it's the point of the break-in of timeless into time that ought to be the religious concern, not the future, in the ordinary sense of the term. Whereas, as the hint hath guessed, the gift hath understood his incarnation. Here, the impossible union of spheres of existence is actual. Here, the past and future are conquered and reconciled. So this is the aim, never here to be realized, who are only undefeated because we have gone on trying. And so on. Um, I don't want to leave Elliot quite yet, but I want to move on a second. The point of all that is that he's trying to break us of our fascination for the future. And uh, lest you think we have left Dante uh, aside here, uh, Dante is visiting souls in hell who have been inordinately preoccupied with the future. And they have invested religiousness into their concern for the future. I think that's the key to this. All of us are concerned for the future, legitimately concerned for the future. But if that is where we have invested our religious uh, sensibility, then we will simply not, will be even less likely to be the meeting place for that timeless dimension.